All right. Welcome back to the Gillette Health Podcast, where we give you tools to develop a balanced approach to health. I'm Dr. Kyle Gillette. And I'm James O'Hara, nurse practitioner. And today we're going to be having a fun topic. Uh, this is the All Things Big Pharma topic or All Things Big Pharma podcast. So mm -hmm. we did uh, solicit questions for this. And uh, I think a great one to start with would be, um, what are telltale signs that your doctor or nurse practitioner is compromised by big pharma? And then on the contrary, what are some signs that your provider is trustworthy? Yeah. Well, once I heard in the song, follow the money, baby. So uh, if you follow the money, if your doctor has accepted, say, you know, millions of dollars for speaking for just a year or two from the same company, then potentially they could be compromised. Uh, that is a lot of money. Yeah, that sounds like something that happened in the early 2000s with a company called GSK. Mm -hmm. The golden era of drug reps and being a doctor, I guess. Yeah, so if I would have gotten into this, let's say 20 to 25 years sooner, then I too may have been able to enjoy racetrack days, fishing trips, expensive stays at resorts. Mm -hmm. But uh, despite what the public opinion or perception is, that really is not happening in this day and age. They've really cracked down on that kind of stuff. Um, I think about the extent of what people can get are now like research funding, mm. reasonable speaking fees, and then, um, of course, lunches and education from the drug reps. Yeah, um, it's really kind of swung back the other way at a high level when you're looking at the individual healthcare provider. So the individual doctor, the individual NP, your GP that you go in and see in general, they receive um, essentially no significant uh, funds or gifts. I don't think they're even allowed to do pins anymore. So if they have two lunches a year from a company that's probably worth 10 or 12 bucks total in the Midwest or 40 bucks total in New York or California, <laughs> So it's, it's essentially nothing and it's not worth anything to them. And um, I can tell you from the many different clinics I've worked at and the many different clinics that colleagues have worked at, um, being a drug rep or an MSL is hard because nobody wants to listen to you because they all resent you for essentially taking away the ability to compensate them for their time to listen to something that um, is likely not gonna change their practice anyway. Um, a lot of doctors don't like using new medications because uh, we are also skeptical of everything or should be skeptical of everything. So it's on the drug company to um, help teach that. So just like there's a golden era of bodybuilding, kind of a little bit of a, a black mark on that is steroid use. Uh, actually, a lot of a black mark on that is uh, rampant steroid abuse on the golden era of bodybuilding. Whereas in the golden era of big pharma, the 90s and early 2000s, um, uh, kind of like extra extravagant expense on doctors is a black mark on that. But I would argue an even bigger black mark on Big Pharma right now is just the huge amount of money that's spent on ads. Yeah, and that was something one of our audience members actually mentioned was the advertising. And then I guess one thing that I've seen an interesting pattern with some of these larger health systems is that they don't want the perception that there's any influence from Big Pharma. So they actually ban reps from coming in and talking about medications or even lunches or even giving samples. And mm -hmm. there's certainly pros and cons to that. So, you know, the pro being the public perception and then your risk of, you know, bias or a prescriber's opinion being swayed one way or the other is very low. But at the same time, then you may have, 
you know, expensive medications where patients could benefit from samples mm -hmm. for improving their condition, quality yep. of life, and you're essentially taking that away. So there's pros and cons to that. And I don't know that that makes large health systems a hero. Someone asked us about whether they were evil or hospitals were evil or big pharma was evil or whether it was the insurance companies. And we'll get into all those details. We will. So uh, this is going to be a fun podcast. Absolutely. Uh, a few, I guess, definitions starting off for those that are not in healthcare, or that aren't a clinician or a scientist. A drug rep is usually kind of a business person and um, often they're the first point of contact with your regular doctor. Um, you know, most doctors don't have a dozen different MSLs in their phone that they're talking to or emailing on a regular basis. MSL is a medical science liaison. They're generally a PhD or a PharmD or even an MD. And they're able to talk about off-label uses. They're able to talk about the science and the uh, physiology and how that drug hopefully addresses that pathophysiology or how that drug addresses that symptom. Whereas a drug rep is um, basically just a sales position. Um, and then uh, a couple other things. Um, there's a, uh, I forget exactly the, the act, but there's a federal disclosure. Um, there's legislature passed a few years ago where you can actually look up and see how much money uh, different providers receive from various companies. Yeah, yeah, that's true. You can go in and put in that person's first and last name and you can see, I, I think the categories, I haven't spent a ton of time exploring this, but um, sometimes people will use this to say, hey, look, I'm not getting kickbacks from Big Pharma. And then some people are probably quite upset that this is there because they're getting some research funding and they're not actually prescribing drugs very often at all, mm -hmm. but they're getting their research funded from a pharmaceutical company. So the perception there is, oh, this person's getting paid millions of dollars per year when it's not a speaker fee, it's not yep. millions of dollars in lunches, it's research funding. So there's even a bit of nuance when it comes to something like that. Yeah, a lot of times it just goes to your lab. So it's not like you're using that money for vacations. All that money is spent um, in order to conduct research to benefit public health in as an unbiased way possible. Yeah, and speaking of research to benefit public health, wouldn't it be great if there were no paywalls when we're trying to find these studies? But I think that's another one of our rats scenarios where we're yeah. like reading an interesting study and we discover that it was done in a, a mouse model. Um, and then another one is we see an interesting headline, an interesting study cited, and then we go try to actually see the full text of that. And then it is behind a paywall. And that's another scenario where we say rats. Yeah, uh, certainly so. One thing that I found that was particularly malignant, pun intended, by the way, because this was studying P-part delta agonists. Um, one of the good things about GSK, which is GlaxoSmithKline, is that they appear to be the only company that wants to touch funding research um, on new P-part delta agonists, largely for um, uh, biliary disorders. But um, when I looked into their program, you can go to uh, look up various programs that fund multiple different research studies, even the information behind the program, which was not in an academic journal, um, but that was also behind a different paywall. So this would just be information about their, what their candidate drugs that they think that could be applied to biliary conditions or various other medical conditions, even that is behind a paywall. They don't want people to be able to access mm -hmm. that, or they I imagine want to make some money 
if people are going to access that information. Yeah, and it's not a journal, so it can't be found on something that starts with sigh and then ends in bub. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, we mentioned the legislation that was introduced to remove paywalls. Uh, previously, uh, we've discussed journals like Curious. I think that's mostly an open access journal, but from a thousand foot view, um, yes, uh, we definitely want there to be less restricted information. And the fact of the matter is when you publish in a journal, and there are several, um, there are several studies that we want to publish in journals in a variety of different fields, but whenever we do, we're basically making the, the choice, do we pay $2,000, $3,000, $5,000 in order to publish this without a paywall? Or do you just publish it with a paywall? Yeah, and then the other topic that you brought up here is that the authors of that paper, they are allowed to send you that paper for free when it's requested. So mm -hmm. let's say that Kyle and I published a, a paper in Nature. Yeah, it's an okay journal. Yeah, uh, I imagine there's quite a sizable fee there to get that open access. Yeah. But if someone said, hey, I'd really like to read your guys' paper that you published on you know, trends in fill in the blank, then we could send that paper to that person. Uh, and I've tried this on occasion. You know, you find people on you know, Twitter, or there's a corresponding email there, and it's essentially a coin flip whether I hear back from that person or not. So it's, it's a loophole of sorts, but it's not a very effective one because it's gonna depend on, maybe this person is retired at this point. They published a paper 20 years ago and we can't see that. That person is not gonna be in their retirement trying to you know, drum up interest in this paper and then sending it out to people. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, one other point on papers. One thing that we both particularly love about academic journals is the ability to submit a letter to the editor. It's the, a commentary uh, article, if you will, and it, it's published in usually a subsequent journal. And occasionally you'll have back and forth. There's one of these back and forths on one of the new PPAR Delta agonists. And I think of it as the uh, an equivalent to the YouTube comment section, but among scientists and clinicians. So I wish that that was taken it uh, taken advantage of more often. Yeah, when we were looking at this the other day, an example, and you know, it was a gastroenterology journal, I believe, or hepatology, perhaps. Mm -hmm. But it reminded me a bit of Twitter, except a much more elaborate back and forth in the Twitter or Med Twitter comments section. Uh, and it's done like with some formality to it. So it's like, you know, oh, thank you for bringing, you know, thank you for your critique of this. But in reality, is that person actually thankful that their <laughs> article got critiqued? Probably not, but it's like um, like a work email chain, mm -hmm. right? Everything yes. is very, uh, very much formal and, and polite to each other. It's a nice mm -hmm. format to have that sort of a discussion. We appreciate your thoughtful and useful critique of our work. Yeah, like now we will proceed to dumpster you. In or the in the subsequent <laughs> paragraph, or as previously discussed, or like in case you didn't actually read my paper, <laughs> as mentioned in the paper. Yeah. In any case, um, I guess to talk a little bit about the nuance and why it may be important for, you know, pharma in some cases to provide education to providers. Um, yeah, this was something that we just came up with an example as right. Mm -hmm. Any contraceptive will get the job done. But mm -hmm. there are certainly reasons to use one medication over another in mm -hmm. any classes, especially in contraception, something that is so 
widespread and with so many different variables. We have an entire podcast on this, by the way, the risks and benefits of all the various uh, synthetic estrogens and synthetic progestins. If we had done it on synthetic androgens, I think it would have been much more popular, but it was one of our least popular podcasts. But uh, then just picking on this specific example, if you ask most OB-GYNs, or even if you just look at podcasts of people that talk about uh, female hormone optimization, a lot of times they say, oh yeah, oral contraceptives, great. Give oral contraceptives to everybody. The benefit's gonna outweigh the risk. Doesn't even matter which one. Just choose one that's covered or choose choose whoever, I guess, gave you a drug rep lunch last. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I guess the equivalent of that would be if you looked at the male hormone replacement side of things. And it's like, oh, nandrolone, oxandrolone, testosterone, they'll all get the job done. You know, just pick one and give it to them. Yep. That's almost the equivalent of what's being said there. Yeah, it Obviously, essentially is. Yeah, not for contraception, but for like a hormone replacement protocol. Will adding all of those things in have a net increase in androgenic signaling? Like, yes. Mm -hmm. But there's very different risk profiles between all of those in very different ways that they work. Yeah. If you look at the average male on a synthetic androgen, prescribed or not, um, but even if it is prescribed, they've probably given hundreds of hours of thought to that molecule and its various effects in the body. If you look at the average female on a synthetic estrogen or progestin, most commonly an oral contraceptive, they have probably given zero minutes of thoughts to that. And their healthcare provider has also probably given zero minutes of thought to that. So I thought about your analogy. I think you said any contractor can build a kitchen. So just hire anybody, right? <laughs> yeah. And I think we're you know plugging our contraceptive podcast here, but we did raise some interesting screening questions that someone could ask their provider to see whether this person is someone who they feel you know is competent in managing their hormonal contraception mm -hmm. or whether they need to you know not necessarily doctor shop but find someone who's compatible with them and understands what is being prescribed from a synthetic HRT or contraception standpoint. Certainly. So I guess we've uh, built up that topic enough. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Um, so I guess we could jump into some questions now and see um, what people wanted to know about Big Pharma. And mm -hmm. full disclosure, we probably don't know the answers to all these questions, but we will do our best to give our perspective from, you know, what we've heard from others, mm -hmm. communicating with drug reps and MSLs. Uh, first question is, how does Big Pharma choose the doctors they work with to test the drugs? Yeah. So, uh, and again, a lot of these questions are kind of rhetorical as well, because there's not one definitive answer to this. I think our friend David DeMosquita asked this question, and thank you for submitting all your questions via the Instagram story. But um, often there's kind of like a, there's an odd hierarchy and it's different within every company, but often the connection is made when a provider shows interest or when the provider just happens to be at an academic center, uh, medical science liaisons, and I think they're usually like the um, head of the department is called a field medical director. Often they're already embedded in, in academic centers in places where they routinely run studies. So often, you know, uh, let's say an MD PhD is hired at the academic center and they're just already in the pipeline. They're expected to help um, write grants for various drugs. For example, the PPAR Delta academic centers were Toronto, Miami, and California Davis. So if you happen to get hired there, 
boom, you're kind of like in the GlaxoSmithKline pipeline just because of where you're at. Um, in a situation like ours, where we're at um, a small independent clinic, then we really have to emphasize our interest and potentially ask a few astute questions, get connected with the medical science liaison, and then just kind of work your way uh, through the company. Yeah, and I guess that's an interesting aside is that if you have a, like if I myself, or if you have a question about a drug, we can submit that either through our rep or to an MSL, either chat with that MSL about the drug if like a particular side effect was noted in a study, or if we um, you know, wanted to submit to their, I forget what the name of the board is, but they'll actually send back a written response uh, with or without a citation. If they have the data, they provide that. If they don't, then you know it's kind of like, well, it's unknown at this time. So mm -hmm. you know, providers can do a bit more research that is secondary to, or in addition to what the rep is telling them. So you can get more information than just use this drug for this because this is better you can look a little bit deeper and find out more about the mechanism, the side effects and so forth. Yeah, so I guess in a thousand foot view, it depends on the situation, but Big Pharma is always on the lookout for clinicians and scientists to partner with. And that is a good thing because they have a, uh, an impetus to learn more about their drugs that are out and that are in, like, and that are in the pipeline. And just like, we're recruiting a new nurse or a new doctor to work at the clinic, um, or residencies recruiting people. Um, there, like you can go out and you can find someone, but often the best candidates reach out to you and express their interest, and they just serendipitously fall into your lap. So I think that's probably enough on um, choosing doctors. The next question is, how does the FDA determine if a drug is suitable for humans uh, prior to clinical trials, so when they first start using it. Yeah, and this is something I think we discussed way back on one of our Gillette Health Team podcasts um, with our colleague, uh, Alec McCarthy, who has a PhD. And this is, starts actually not in even animal models, usually. Usually there's some in vitro data, uh, maybe some uh, computer modeling of how a drug may behave. So then it does run through the gamut of in vitro and in vivo in animals, and then sometimes moving up to larger animal models, looking at things like toxicity and effects on the heart and blood pressure, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then it makes its way into like phase one safety trials, looking at, hey, what are the blood levels of this drug in typically healthy volunteers, people that have no medical conditions? It's like, is this something that uh, can even be tolerated in humans. Basically, what happens when we give this drug to people and what are the levels in the blood? Yeah, it all, if it's a first-in-class drug, first-in-class is um, a novel mechanism of action. There's no other cousin drugs, if you will. It still would be a bit daunting to be one of those volunteers. Yeah, some people would probably be very excited to be one of those volunteers. Mm -hmm. Other people, um, I, mean, I suppose it's not like these people are like randomly chosen, like, hey, you have to do this. These people are enrolling mm -hmm. and, you know, yep. typically being compensated to participate in this research. But yeah, for some people like myself, I think that would be a bit like anxiety provoking. I wouldn't want to be the very first person to take a drug necessarily. Yeah. Um, the next question is, how does Big Pharma influence medical school education? So this is also a pretty interesting one. Um, 
Directly and indirectly, there are certainly influences, but often they could have more of an influence because it is not uncommon for people to finish medical school and not be familiar with the new drugs that have come out within the last couple of years. In fact, it's pretty common for physicians to finish residency, especially if they are not extremely subspecialized and to not be familiar with the brand names or the very new drugs, because often um, your patient population, those wouldn't be covered in residency. Um, so there's certainly ways that they could influence medical school education more. Um, in general, a lot of academic centers where there is med schools, like at KU, um, it is very rare to get um, you know presentations by drug reps or drug rep lunches. So unfortunately for poor, starving med students in debt, um, they have to pay for their own lunches most of the time. Yeah, in, in my medical education, not medical school because I'm a nurse practitioner, I don't recall any like pharmaceutical influence, commercials, notepads, pens, lunches, anything like that that yep. I received. So I don't think they're very present in that setting, probably because the, I mean, there's probably regulations there, but the ROI from a lunch to med students is not going to be significant compared to the ROI from a subspecialist who has a high likelihood of prescribing a lot of that medication or has a patient mm -hmm. population that could benefit from that medication. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that's probably what's at play there. So next we have a, a bit of a loaded question. Um, the question was, how does the FDA approve bad drugs? Um, so an example I think they gave was like Oxycontin. Mm -hmm. uh, another example that gets brought up is Vioxx, for example. Mm -hmm. So there is an approval process that happens. And in these cases, I don't know that the drugs were necessarily bad in that approval process. The data probably looked quite good, both of these pain medications, coincidentally. Stage two and stage three data. Yeah, so you have a, re a relatively short window of time to show, hey, this drug has a positive effect in a reasonable safety profile. And then when you would see the problem emerge is in what's sometimes called phase four, sometimes called post-marketing data. And you see, hey, like in the case of Vioxx, people are actually having vascular events. It looks like this medication is a problem. Or in the case of Oxycontin, and there's been documentaries made about this now, um, it appears, oh, it looks like there are some problems with this medication, like we were told or mm -hmm. was misrepresented in terms of the addictive potential. And now this is a huge problem. So those things are probably were just not present in a very short window of time. Yeah. And um, part of this loaded question is asking, uh, if you look at the average number of RCTs that it takes to approve a new medication or a new drug, it certainly goes down. So previously it was several, and often it is just one or two studies. So the average number of studies that are um, done on a specific drug has decreased significantly for stage two and stage three data, but I wouldn't necessarily say they get approved easier. There is just literally not a reason for other centers other than the ones that get funding, often from the drug company, to run a study like that. There is... Um, more money being spent on advertising and less money being spent on study. So uh, something like 
uh, limiting the amount of money spent on advertising, or at least saying your ratio needs to go, because if you look at nonprofits, it's kind of the same thing. Some nonprofits spend almost all their money on ancillary, whatever, you know, paying support staff. They don't actually send the money. And obviously, depending on what nonprofit sector it is, like there is more background work that needs to be done for some, but you want the money to actually go to help people. And with drug companies, it's the same way. You want the money to actually go towards funding new studies, not for the investors in the company, not for advertising. But at the same time, there's also less independent sources. Tiny Foundation is an example of an independent non-pharmaceutical company that does fund research like Rhonda Patrick's and Andrew Huberman's. Yeah. And it's interesting with the prevalence of you know pharmaceutical advertising. And I, to be honest, I don't watch a lot of television, but I've heard people talk about when you have something like golf or Formula One racing, you know, that's going to tend to be a older male demographic that's watching that. So then you may see prostate cancer drugs targeted advertising because that population is just more likely to be experiencing or to soon experience prostate cancer. And then, you know, sometimes patients are aware of things before their uh, providers are. So there's certainly been cases where patients have told us about a test or a study or something like that that was not on our radar just because of the massive information out there. So it's it's sort of a double-edged sword because then you have patients seeing these drugs that are under patent currently, yep. very expensive, often not suited to their exact case. Um, and I think people make the point that like pharmaceutical advertising is, this is sort of a oasis for pharmaceutical companies because it just does not occur in other parts of the world. Yeah, um, there's a lot of truth to that. And there's a lot of other things that need done. But I think that answers the advertising question pretty well. Yeah. And maybe we side shoot here and talk about, you know, phase one, phase two, phase three, post-marketing, because, you know, we just talked about that with the FDA approval process. Uh, and we have an example of a peptide mm. um, that actually has gone through some of these things now. So we'll shoot off to the side here. Um, so phases of a clinical trial. Even before you get to a clinical trial, when you hear someone talk about the preclinical data, that's talking about either in vitro or in an animal model. And then clinical trials is where you're actually using a medication in, or I guess I should say potential medication yep. in a human individual or individuals. So you have phase one. These are typically very small studies. You have maybe several dozen individuals and they're just looking at the pharmacokinetics. So um, how quickly is this drug metabolized? What are the blood levels? Are there any toxic effects? What happens if you give one milligram? What happens if you give 100 milligrams? Kind of establishing the, I guess, safety window of the medication and how tolerable it is. Uh, so we know some medications have a lot of GI effects. Some medications are going to cause headaches for people. Some medications are going to make people very drowsy. Basically just making note of what happens in a healthy individual, not even necessarily the target population for that. Uh, and then we have phase 2A and 2B, which are a little bit confusing because there's no explicit definitions. And you even mm -hmm. see in the published studies, sometimes they're contradicting like, well, we're saying this is a 2B trial, but it looks a lot like a 2A trial. So what's that all about? Yeah. So this is looking at dosing and efficacy. Um, and like you said, there's a lot of crossover, but this is aims to be more clinically significant for its therapeutic use. So how do we dose this medication? Not just what its pharmacokinetics are, um, 
you know, what can we do to address the pathophysiology of the condition that we're treating? So, um, for example, is it ad addressing the root cause? Where in, um, like, you know, where in the current literature does it fit in with the treatment? Yeah, so you have the 2A is supposed to be aimed at narrowing the dose and the 2B is supposed to be named at or aimed at like a specific clinical condition. Um, that doesn't always happen because these things cross over a lot. And as we'll mention, you know, another trial described itself as a 2B slash 3 study to further mm. complicate things. So phase 3 is typically where medications are at for their FDA approval. Mm. So you have them compared to either another medication that's used for treatment of something or to whatever the standard of care is at time, because there are some conditions out there where there is no standard or there's no medication. There is a standard of care, like this is what we usually do for these people, but there's not a medication there. Uh, I suppose an example of this a recent phase three trial that probably got more attention than any other phase three, phase three trial in history uh, related to the GLP-1 medications, and they were not actually compared to um, like an alternative weight loss medication, but they were compared to a sort of standard of care of eat more, or I'm sorry, eat less and move more. Yeah. <laughs> Got that one backwards. <laughs> and the, you know, the lifestyle arm of that wasn't particularly successful. And we've pointed out some of the, the problems there. Um, but that's a good example of a phase three trial where they took a medication targeted for obesity compared to something that is done in practice for obesity. Um, paired with a placebo, and then looked at the results and what those differences were. Mm -hmm. Generally, after these phase three trials are done, that you look at it for approval, there is ways that you can pay for expedited approval, which I'm not an expert in that area, but it does seem uh, a, a little bit off to me to be able to pay for your expedited approval, especially if there's other medications also in development in the same class, but um, uh, you know, perhaps a medical director, MSL at some point could give us more insight into, the, into um, that mechanism within the FDA approval process. And then after that, as you mentioned, they have the, um, the data afterwards, sometimes referred to as stage four. Yeah, and the post-marketing data, and this is where you see sort of breakthrough things or side effects that weren't seen in the trials, because the trials may only have 10,000 people total that were studied, even fewer if you go back farther in time. Uh, like one that I know off the top of my head is uh, Viagra or Sildenafil now. That was maybe about 5,000 people total that were studied before it got its approval. I think the trials are a bit larger now depending on the condition and how much, uh, how large the population needs to be for that study to be adequately powered. Um, but there are things that are always not gonna be caught whenever you're going through the phase one, two, and three. These, so, are, these are very helpful. And it's not, it's, it's not like the medication stays or it goes. Often it ends with a new black box warning. Yeah, yeah, that's something that has, I believe, been applied to um, like Singular as an example there because there's some potential psychiatric concerns that have been seen that were not initially exposed during the phase one and two and three trials. But again, it's a, you know, a small problem. It's not something that you're going to see manifested in the short time frames that you saw. And it's not something they were necessarily looking for in those phase one, and phase one, two, and three trials. I think that's a good segue to talk about 
VIP, vasoactive intestinal peptide. So it's a peptide and uh, physicians that were using it first were using from compounding pharmacies. I thought that was illegal. Compounding pharmacies. Sounds like whatever they're using, they had no idea what was in it. Yeah, it, it must be. Uh, th this is particularly interesting. Um, a lot of the trials for vasoactive intestinal peptide, and it's a bit different. For this, they're looking for, and I believe uh, late in 2022, it received its, uh, it's not emergent, it, it's not emergency use authorization, but it received its fast track to be uh, it's a drug. For Disney Fast Pass. Yeah, it's Fast Pass. Yeah. So going back to, I guess, sort of the beginning of this peptide, it's been around for a long time, two, three decades at this point. There was a, as we mentioned earlier, like a phase one trial is typically done in healthy individuals, mm -hmm. but there's a trial that calls itself a phase one trial where they actually use this in patients who were septic or with acute respiratory distress syndrome, uh, critically ill patients in the hospital, and that was considered mm -hmm. a phase one trial. So then um, in this excerpt from a phase two trial, yeah. like Kyle mentioned, um, looks like some ICUs actually use compounded vasoactive intestinal peptide in treating critically ill patients, primarily with respiratory conditions. Mm -hmm. So I, I found that to be particularly interesting because the compounding seems to get a, a bad rep, sometimes deservedly so. Yeah. Um, there are accrediting bodies. So if you're looking at, you know, if someone out there is getting medication from a compounding pharmacy, you can typically go to their website and see whether they are uh, PCAB certified. Um, you can look, it's all public data, whether they've had any marks on their record for like non-sterile conditions or um, issues with the medications that were sent out to get reported. There's a lot of things like that that are public knowledge. So people can do a little bit of homework on the pharmacies they're getting any compounded medications from. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and from the healthcare provider standpoint, experience certainly helps as well. And uh, hearing other people's experiences. So um, there's a lot of heterogeneity with compounding pharmacies. I think we can probably leave it at that. Yeah, and then as you mentioned uh, with vasoactive intestinal peptide, they did have a phase three trial here recently, the one that described itself as a phase 2B slash three trial. Um, not sure exactly why, but it, we thought we'd take note of that. Is it 2B or is it not 2B? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe that's it. Uh, but in a respiratory condition that uh, people are often in the hospital for, uh, it looks like it's going to get an approval based on some positive phase 2B slash three data. Not statistically significant in this case, but possibly clinically significant. So the opposite of things that we've talked about previously. So it's a relatively small sample size and the numbers of a subgroup analysis, which again, we mentioned subgroup analyses are not great. Usually look at the primary endpoint and the biggest group possible. So not a subgroup, just everybody that's assigned to the treatment group and the placebo group. But in this case, um, small enough numbers, 131 or uh, just over 100 in the uh, treatment group and 60 or so in the placebo group. Um, but yeah, it just goes to show that statistical significance is not always clinically significant. Yeah, and you know, if, if they used this and had the same results in a patient population of 1,000, it likely would have been statistically significant. Absolutely. So you can slice and dice the data a million different ways. Um, and a, I don't know exactly what to classify this trial in, but they used an 
vasoactive intestinal peptide again, a two hour infusion to specifically induce migraines. Um, and this was basically a trial to see if targeting VIP in some way would be a viable uh, pharmaceutical pipeline for treating migraine. So um, if you're taking this peptide and you keep getting migraines, that might be why, mm -hmm. um, because it specifically does that, at least in the setting of getting it infused over two hours. There's another potential polypill, <laughs> VIP with migraine med. You combine the nasal sprays and have those. This is true. This is almost all a joke, by the way. <laughs> so I guess, uh, what do we do about the pharmaceutical influence in healthcare? So one state uh, took an initiative. This was some time back, I wanna say around 2005, not sure on the exact timeline there, but the state of Minnesota banned any pharmaceutical companies from giving gifts or including food to doctors. And the dollar amount there is either 50 or $100, not sure exactly. Um, but I guess the pros of this are there's limited pharmaceutical influence. Um, the cons are there is you know, limited pharmaceutical education. So, you know, you can have- Imagine being an MSL in, in a state like this. Yeah. There's probably just no medical science or medical affairs. See, see my article I published with Alec McCarthy in the MSL journal about the role of medical affairs, including with telemedicine. Um, but yeah, I would not want to be a provider or MSL in Minnesota. Yeah, I mean, it's not, um, in the patients, like, the perception here is probably better than the good that it's actually doing. So it sounds like a better thing than it actually is. Because if you have an uninformed provider, that's not necessarily a good thing. You should want to have more data and more education always. And then you can sift through that and think about it, think critically and decide whether that medication is a good medication, a bad medication, a medication you use in a specific circumstance versus not knowing that that medication exists whatsoever. Yeah, I think that's a good summary. Um, a lot of things sound great on paper. And when you take into account the reality of what your average doctor, not even below average, but what your average doctor or NP is willing to put into um, like looking into novel pharmacology and treatment options, it's just not not a lot of time. Yeah, sometimes the you know 30 minutes a 30 minute lunch slot may be the most time someone is willing to devote to that. Yep. Plus, um, if I was in Minnesota, then all the drug reps would just have to watch me eat my salmon and mackerel. <laughs> can't, can't salmon and mackerel. Anyway, um, I think that covers most of the topics and most of the questions that we had today. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good summary. Um, again, we're not necessarily experts in this field. We're just kind of giving our take and our experiences and our opinions on some of these nuanced interactions that occur mm -hmm. there. So it seems like the takeaway is very similar to the conclusion we similarly reach is that pharma is neither all good nor all evil. Yes, um, we have a lot of dear friends in what's considered big pharma and uh, they have given us a lot of knowledge and uh, have been very helpful. And there's a lot of opportunities for both clinicians and scientists to improve public health by staying unbiased and even working and potentially taking grant money to run clinical trials um, in concert with Big Pharma. One of, them, one of the names of those is an investigator-initiated trial. 
where someone has an idea and we have a lot of ideas for trials that we want to do. And um, the pharmaceutical company helps you execute that and funds it as well. So that would be one example or one microcosm of a good interaction between a clinic and big pharma. Whereas, as we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, a bad example is perhaps um, having you know, uh, an extremely good paycheck for a very small amount of airtime. For example, if a big pharma company uh, paid us you know, $300,000 for one ad on the Gillette Health podcast for a medication, um, especially if we are saying things about the medication that uh, we wouldn't say anyway, but that's just too much money. So now things have kind of swung back the other way. Um, hopefully this helps you have a better idea of what it's actually like now. Um, this is the post golden age for big pharma. Yeah, and in light of that, I feel like we should insert a uh, brought to you by Pfizer. <laughs> yeah, brought to you by Pfizer, GlaxoSmithKline, and Novo Nordisk. So no, thank uh, you for our sponsors. <laughs> <laughs> no, and as our listeners know, I think that would be very out of character and people would be very shocked to see like, what this is a, a medication, especially if it was a, um, I suppose a podcaster red ad, which are so popular now where people are reading off of a script because it seems to connect the listener to that person and then that person to that product more easily. So uh, we did not receive any funding for this podcast. We have no sponsors yet. And this is kind of a difficult topic to talk about, actually. We have lots of people who want to sponsor the podcast, but um, there are almost always conflicts of interest. And even within companies that we like, it's not just big pharma, by the way, especially outside of academia. There's supplement companies, there's lab companies, there's uh, various devices, health devices, health apps. Um, There's all sorts of things. And it seems like almost everybody is compromised in some way. So being cognizant of that and being, and when we do have sponsors, we will be very direct about our conflicts of interest. Um, Hopefully we'll stay completely independent and it won't uh, affect our unconscious or subconscious bias, Mm -hmm. but we will let you know. Absolutely. So thank you for listening. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your questions. Let us know in the comment section what you thought about this podcast. If you would like to see more, I guess, opinion-based content versus just um, clinical or database data-driven content. And as always, may God bless you with health and happiness. Thank you.